As Christians, we can get so accustomed to talking about God's salvation that we don't stop to consider some foundational questions. Questions such as, how does God save us in light of our sin? And why does God save us? Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find today's sermon plus thousands of more free resources over at our website, Radical.net. Well, in today's message, David Platt helps us see how the book of Exodus answers these all-important questions. As God's salvation of Israel demonstrates, He saves us by His grace, for His glory, and for our good. Here's David with a sermon titled, How and Why Does God Save Us? from the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Exodus chapter 7, second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 7. While you're turning there, I want to greet those of you in Loudoun and Prince William and Montgomery County and Main Ave and different microsites. It's really good to be together across Washington around God's Word. And speaking of being together, I just want to remind All of us and all of our campuses that we are scheduled to have a church-wide prayer gathering this coming Friday night from 8 to midnight. So we will gather together. Marissa will be here. And uh, we will gather together, Lord willing, here at the Tyson's campus for what I pray and trust will be a powerful time of meeting with God for those four hours. Obviously, you don't have to stay the whole time, but I would, I want to encourage as many of you as possible to be here for at least part of that time, 8 p.m. to midnight here at Tyson's. I, I don't believe we have even come close to experiencing all that God wants us to experience in our lives and our church together through prayer. And these Friday nights are huge toward that end. So in fact, let's, let's pray right now. God, I, uh, I just feel like we are so prone to miss so much, even, uh, even gathering today and singing songs and opening up your word just to kind of do this casually and not really to think about the wonder and the weight, the gravity of What's happening right now is we are gathered together before you, the holy God of the universe. We, we've read in the Bible this week in Exodus 19 about how he, you revealed yourself in a consuming fire on a mountain that caused everybody to tremble. And we're just prone not to tremble before you. So we, we pray, even as we open up your word and then As we gather now, as we gather on Friday, Lord willing, uh, we pray that you would teach us to pray, teach us who you are, and teach us the wonder of prayer that we can right now, even if we look at what's going around the world, God, we pray to you, your God over New Zealand, we pray for your grace and your mercy in that country and among people there for your church to be a picture of salt and light in your love amidst tragedy they've experienced. We pray 
that Muslims in New Zealand would know you love them and would see your love in those who claim the name of Christ. We, 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 we pray to you for our brothers and sisters in Venezuela amidst all that we see going on there. God, please, please strengthen and sustain and provide for our brothers and sisters in Venezuela and use them, use your church there, we pray, to be salt and light in the middle of a lot of darkness. We pray for peace in Venezuela, God. We pray for your provision for those who are suffering in Venezuela. God, we look around our country and our lives. Lord, we need your mercy in so many ways. We we want to be salt and light here. We want to be a demonstration of your love here to all kinds of people that we work with, all kinds of people in our communities. We pray for Muslims in the United States to know that you love them and for them to see your love on display in those who claim the name of Jesus. So, uh, God, we praise you for the privilege of prayer. We praise you the privilege of opening up your word and we pray that you would help us to feel and experience the full weight of and wonder of this privilege. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, we have a lot of ground to cover today in the word. You look at the notes that hopefully you received when you came in and you might think we're gonna be here all day. And this is the problem, like we were reading through Exodus this week and I, I wanted to preach on every single text we were reading. I, I've got one sermon to preach like 50 incredible texts. I mean, 10 plagues, Passover, parting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, water from a rock, worship at Mount Sinai before God is a consuming fire and then you have the 10 commandments. Like how in the world do you cover all that? So I'm gonna try. Uh, I hope in a way that gives you a big picture view of the book of Exodus and enables you to have lunch today. So, uh, and on a side note, as you read through the Bible, so if you're visiting, we're reading through the Bible together as a church, a couple chapters a day between now and the end of November. And we invite you to join in with us. You can pick up one of these Bible reading plans uh, here at uh, other campuses, or you just go online to mclanebible.org, click right in the center. It'll take you to a Bible reading plan with all sorts of resources that are designed to help you, including a daily podcast. But as we read through the Bible, I'm guessing there are all kinds of questions that come to your mind, like, what does this mean? Or what is that about? And obviously, we don't have time to dive into everything each Sunday. So I want to encourage you, uh, if possible, uh, if you have the resources to do it, or if not, talk to another believer who might be able to help you to get a good study Bible. So a good study Bible is basically a Bible with notes that help you understand what you're reading. Give some background here or there. Help kind of, yeah, give some important information that will help bring some things to light. Now, I mentioned a good study Bible because you don't want to get one that in any way skews what you're reading. So you want to make sure to get a good one. My personal recommendation would be the ESV study Bible. So English Standard Version, that's the version that uh, I'm preaching from. So they have a great study Bible with really helpful notes in it. The CSB study Bible is also really good. So Christian Standard Bible that goes with that translation of the Bible. There's other good ones out there, um, but I would just encourage you. I think that would be helpful for you as we read through the Bible. But for today, what I want us to do is I want us to think about the book of Exodus under the banner of this question. How and why does God save us? Now, even asking that question, 
obviously assumes that we need to be saved by God from something. And by this point in the Bible, we've clearly seen that we have all sinned against God. Every one of us in this room, at other campuses. And this is a serious problem. It is the most serious problem in our lives. Sin is the most serious problem in your life. Because it separates you from God. If you are not saved from your sin, then you will live now and eventually die separated from God, which is not the way you want to live or die or spend eternity. You need to be saved from sin. So how does God save us? And then maybe a question we don't often stop to think about, why does God save us? So let's meditate on these questions as we learn what God is teaching us in the book of Exodus. We'll start at the top of your notes and then we'll dive into the text. So if you're taking notes, first, how does God save us? And the answer the Bible gives us in the book of Exodus is that God saves us by his grace. God saves us by his grace. And what grace means is God's unmerited mercy. God saves us by showing mercy to us when we do not deserve it. The Bible teaches, if you keep going there, then I'm going to show it to you starting in Exodus 7. We deserve destruction and death for our sin. Not the most politically correct statement, but a biblical statement. And the book of Exodus is a picture of this, particularly in Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So look with me at Exodus 7, where our Bible reading left off last week. God, through Moses, told Pharaoh to let his people go out of Egypt, where they were slaves, to worship him. And Pharaoh refused. Pick up in verse 14 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Thus begins the first plague in Egypt, the first of 10 such plagues, the plague of blood, followed by a plague of frogs, then a plague of gnats, fourth, a plague of flies, fifth, a plague on livestock, then a plague on, of boils, followed by a plague on, of hail, a plague of locusts, and then a plague of darkness. All of these plagues, clear pictures of punishment, for sin. Every one of them comes about in response to Pharaoh's rebellion against God. The plagues are a picture of right, just punishment due sin before a holy God. And they all set the stage for a tenth and final plague, the plague on the firstborn. So turn me over to Exodus 11, verse 4, where we read this. After all these nine other plagues, Moses said, Exodus eleven four. thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. 
There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Yet even after that is threatened, Pharaoh still refuses to obey God, thus setting the stage for what becomes known as the Passover in Exodus 12, when God promises that he is going to send a destroyer. That's the word that's used in Exodus 12, 23, a destroyer to strike down every firstborn child and animal in Egypt. Now keep in mind that God's people, the Israelites, were also in Egypt, which means the destroyer was coming over their house too. A picture of the payment due, not just Pharaoh, but all people in their sin. Neither Pharaoh nor the Egyptians nor the Israelites were innocent of sin before a holy God. And the promise of Exodus was that destruction was coming over all. Yet, in this story, God in his grace, in his unmerited mercy, provides deliverance and life through sacrifice. So God provides a way for the firstborn in homes to be saved and ultimately for slaves to be freed through sacrifice. Specifically, he saves his people by the blood of a lamb. So let's read how this works in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse one. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So make sure you got that picture. Take a perfect, pure, spotless lamb, God says. Bring it into your house for four days. Now some of you know, when you have an animal in a house, dog, cat, whatever it may be, there's a bond that is created there. So imagine bringing a cute little lamb into your house for your kids to play with, feed, care for, and then right when your kids are getting used to this nice little lamb, you slaughter it. And you take its blood, and as your children watch, you wipe it across the doorpost of your home. That's an image that sticks with a kid and a family. Imagine your little boy or girl asking you, why, why did you do that? Daddy, why did you do that, Mommy? And your response would be, destruction and death are coming And this lamb is a substitute sacrifice. Look at your 
older brother and realize that this lamb died instead of him. And that night, you can only imagine the cries coming from homes all across Egypt. And the only people that were exempt from judgment on that night were those who trusted in the blood of a lamb. Don't miss this. Judgment didn't pass over the Israelites because they were better people. Judgment didn't pass over the Israelites because they were sinless. Judgment only passed over the Israelites because they trusted in the blood of a lamb, a substitute sacrifice provided by God in his grace. Now it's interesting. So hold your place here in Exodus. We're gonna come back here in a minute, but fast forward with me to Exodus, Exodus 12. Fast forward with me to Exodus chapter 24, which we're gonna read this coming week. So after the Passover and the plague on the firstborn, God's people indeed leave Egypt. They come to Mount Sinai to worship God, to enter into a covenant relationship with him. Exodus 24 is the first fully described public worship service in the Bible. It's like a marriage celebration of God committing himself to his people and them committing themselves to God. So let's read it starting in Exodus 24, verse three. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. That's a reference going all the way back to chapter 20. Ten commandments were given. And then since then, chapter 21, 22, 23 were commandments and rules from God. Moses read all those and the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You catch what happened there. Moses reads all these words from the Lord, actually does it twice in this passage, and after each time, all the people say, we will obey them. But as soon as they say that, what does Moses do? Like the first time, as soon as they say that, Moses sends people to offer sacrifices. Why? Because the people were not able to keep that word. They just said, all the words the Lord has spoken we will do, but that's not true. They were sinners, just like you and me, and it won't be long before they're totally going against God's word. They will sin, rebel against God and his covenant, and the payment for sin is what? Death. So God provides sacrifice by his grace, and Moses throws blood over the altar as a picture, yet again, of a substitute sacrifice to cover over sin, to show that the penalty for sin, death, has been paid. In this picture, we see the just penalty due sin has been paid through a sacrifice. And then verse eight gets really kind of weird because this time after the people say we will obey all of God's word, Moses starts throwing blood not on the altar, but on the people. Aren't you glad this isn't our practice today? Start throwing blood on people in worship, they're not coming back. So it's one way to solve the traffic problem here and overflow in MoCo, we can solve that in an instant. But don't miss the point. Sinners can only enter into a covenant and relationship with the holy God of the universe if there is sacrifice, if the just penalty for sin is poured out. And just like God saved his people by the blood of a lamb in Exodus 12, here in Exodus 24, 
God seals his promise with the blood of another's life. Substitute sacrifice. And you watch what happens next in verse nine. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They beheld God, like sinners beholding the holy God. And they have a covenant meal to celebrate their relationship with God. Oh, we definitely cannot leave this story in the Old Testament because every story in Scripture ultimately whispers one name. One of the things you will love as we read through the Bible is the unity of the Bible because it's all one big story that has huge ramifications for every one of our lives. This is not just a story about Israelites in Egypt however many years ago. This is a story about you and me today in this room and other campuses because we have all sinned. I have, you have. We have all rebelled against the one true holy God. And Romans 6.23 makes clear that the payment for our sin is destruction and death. Eventual physical death, we will die and eternal spiritual death, separated from God. Yet God in his grace, in his unmerited mercy, God has not left you or me alone in our sin. By his grace, God has made a way for us to be saved from destruction and death. God has sent his son, Jesus, to live the pure, spotless, sinless life that none of us could live. And then, though he had no sin to pay a price for, he chose to pay the price for sin. He chose to die on a cross for us. Jesus died as a substitute sacrifice for your sin and my sin. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is the Lamb of God whose blood saves us from destruction and seals us for eternal life. And just like Israelites however many years ago trusted in the blood of a lamb over their doorpost to save them from destruction and death, I urge you today, like right where you are sitting right now, to trust in the blood of a lamb, the blood of Jesus to save you from destruction and death. You deserve destruction and death for sin against God, but God has poured out the just penalty do your sin on his son so that you might trust him and his blood as a sacrifice for you. And just as Moses threw blood over the people, well, I'm not throwing any blood today, but the reality is when you trust in Jesus as a sacrifice for your sin, you can know this, his blood covers it all. Just think about this. No matter what you have ever done, no matter how guilty your conscience is, no matter how stained your past is, no matter how ashamed you might be of this or that, no matter what, when you trust in the blood of Jesus to cover over your sin, you are saved and sealed by God's grace forever. You, a sinner, can behold God in covenant relationship with him, which is why it just so happens when you get to worship in the New Testament, the new covenant, God prescribes a meal where we celebrate what? The giving of Jesus's body and the shedding of Jesus's blood for our sins. Matthew 26, 27, Jesus took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, 
Drink of it, all of you, for this is the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is why we sinners filling rooms all across Washington, D.C., come together every week to celebrate the reality that we have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And we now behold God in a relationship with him that will last forever. That's worth celebrating a meal over. How is, how is this possible? How is it possible for a room, rooms full of sinners across the city to gather together today before the holy God of the universe to worship and enjoy him in his presence. That is only possible by his grace. Not one of us is here by any merit in us. The only reason we are here is because of mercy in him. Mercy in God. God saves us by his grace. Oh, I, I just want to urge you today, like if you've never come to the point in your life where you have placed your faith in the grace of God, in the blood of Jesus to cover over your sins, to bring you into a relationship with God. I want to invite you to do that today. Like right now, this could be the day when your eternity, your life now and forever changes. By God's grace, you think, what do I have to do? You don't have to do anything. You have to trust in what has been done for you. Just trust in his grace. In the same way, those Israelites Trusting in the grace of God. Like the blood of Jesus has been sacrificed for your sin, to forgive you of your sin. You put your faith in Jesus. He will seal you in relationship with God forever. And when you do, and for all who have, never forget, never ever forget, what saves you, Christian, is not how good you are, not how you measure up. Now, not how well you read the Bible or how well you pray this, like, anything. What saves you is not how good you are. That is a recipe for destruction and death. What saves you is not how good you are. What saves you is how gracious God is. And realizing this is a recipe for freedom and life. Which leads to the second point in your notes. So it's where we, so we shift to why God saves us. So how does God save us? By his what? By his grace. Why does God save us? Two answers in Exodus. One, God saves us for our good. For our good. So now go back to Exodus 12. Pick up the story there. God indeed delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt. They have a feast in Exodus 13. At the end of that chapter, we discover that God is going to lead his people with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. How awesome would that be? This massive people watch this huge cloud during the day, this pillar of fire at night. It directs them when and where to go, when and where to stop. He leads them in Exodus 14 to the edge of the Red Sea. By this time, the Egyptians are wishing they had their slaves back, so Pharaoh sends an army after them. Some people never learn. And the Israelites are frightened for good reason. There's a huge body of water in front of them, an opposing army behind them. But Moses says, you gotta see this, Exodus 14, verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. All of a sudden, God splits a sea in half, sends his people through on dry land, and that water comes crashing down over the Egyptian army. So we're starting to get a picture here of the, God, of the, of the good that God saves his people for. So follow along your notes. God leads, guides, and fights for his people. This is what God saves us 
too, for our good. It leads, guides, and fights for us. Then you get uh, to a song of worship in chapter 15. Then you see three miracles back to back to back. First, the water God, God's people come to is bitter, so he miraculously makes it sweet. In chapter 16, they can't find food, so God provides bread from heaven in the morning and meat in the evening. In Exodus 17, when they can't find water, God miraculously provides it from out of a rock. And all of this, we see how God sustains, satisfies, and strengthens his people. You get to chapter 18, God gives wisdom to Moses when it comes to how to lead his people, which was not an easy task. That sets the stage for one of the most significant, significant famous moments in the Old Testament when God gives his people his word, starting with the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. So you turn there, the introduction and first commandment are actually our memory verses from this last week, so I'll put them on the screen. Let's, uh, let's say them together, but don't look at the screen if you have memorized them. So God said... You ready? Do it all together here at other campuses. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now what I've done in your notes is I've tried to offer a summary of these 10 commandments. And man, this is one of the parts I loved studying most this week. And I so wish we had time to go into more depth here. Like this is a sermon series by itself. It was just like 10 weeks just realizing what these commandments mean. So one day, Lord willing, but for now we got a couple minutes. So I just, I want you to, I want you to see the big picture, how God's word is for our good. It's for our good. Just think about how good these commandments are. First commandment, God is showing us the way to abundant life through worship of the right God. No other gods before me. Just think about that. Well, what if you live your entire life and you come to find out in the end that the center around which your life revolved was totally empty? You get to the end of your life only to find out that the foundation upon which you've built your entire life was completely faulty. You waste your life. God here is prescribing the way to abundant life with the right center, with the right foundation. Life with God at the center. God as your foundation. Second commandment, God shows us the way to supernatural love through worship in the right way. So listen to this second commandment, how it's phrased, verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Follow this. God is prescribing not just who is worthy of worship, but how we worship in a way that leads to an experience of God's steadfast love. Like, do you want to experience love to the full in your life? And worship God according to his word. At least the third commandment, verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. See the beauty of this commandment here to cultivate a God-glorifying reverence in a world of triviality? Do you not grow tired of the trite and the trivial, the slow, 
drivel of the shallow and superficial in this world. Like, lift your eyes to true greatness and glory and majesty and wonder and splendor in God. Live with humble, holy, mind-blowing, breathtaking awe and reverence for God and his name. It'll change the way you live. Commandment number four, a countercultural rhythm of work and rest. Verse eight, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Oh, we need, especially across this fast-paced, never-ending rush of life and work in Metro Washington, D.C., we need a counter-cultural, God-given rhythm of work and rest. It sees the value of work, but does not idolize it, is not controlled by it, is more than content to set it down, to get off the phone, to turn off the email, to stop checking this or that relentlessly like the world will fall apart if we don't. When it won't, we can actually rest in God in our pride, are we, are we actually thinking we are busier than God himself? You are not that busy. <laughs> we must rest as God himself modeled for it and for us, and we will pay for it if we don't, if we live just like the culture around us, without a right view of work and rest. Oh, there's so much to dive into there. For our good, God gives us a countercultural rhythm of work and rest. Fifth, a priority on honor in our homes. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Children, students, it is good to honor your mom and your dad. This is a reflection of honor for God. It will be good for your life. Sixth, a priority on protecting others' health. This is where we realize that this command in verse 13, you shall not murder, like some of these other commands, is not merely a prohibition against that particular act, but against any act that physically harms another. God clearly speaks here and places throughout his word against any form of physical violence, abuse, even anger or rage. For our good, God tells us in his word to prioritize protecting other people. Seventh commandment guards the enjoyment of sexuality according to God's design. Again, when you read, you shall not commit adultery. Think not just adultery, but based on all of God's word, clear commands against all sexual activity outside of marriage between a husband and a wife, which is God's good design for sexuality. There's so much we could dive into here in a culture of rampant sexual confusion and disillusion. But God gives this command clearly for our good. This is where we've got to decide in each one of our lives and as the church, are we gonna trust the word of God on sexuality or are we gonna trust the ways of the world on sexuality? And the ways of this world will not lead to fulfillment and satisfaction in the way God's word will lead us to fulfillment and to satisfaction according to God's design. Commandment number eight promotes the enjoyment of possessions according to God's provision. You shall not steal, Exodus 20, 15 says. In other words, enjoy the possessions God provides for you. Do not seek to gain possessions outside of God's provision for you. Again, this commandment has so many ramifications, not just for preventing theft, but for promoting a right understanding of possessions, how they can be used for our good. Again, there's so many ways this world says, use your possessions that are not for our good. 
We need a right view of possessions, how to enjoy them according to God's provision. Number nine, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God is holding up for us trust and trust, truth and trustworthiness in a world of lies and letdowns. Don't we long for that in a world where so much is fake and unreliable? Don't we long for the real that we can believe and rely on? And then the 10th commandment, joy and contentment in a world of jealousy and competition. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not covet your, na- your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Don't, don't you wanna live with joy and contentment instead of just being caught up in a world of jealousy and competition? Don't miss the point here. God's word is good. And God's word is for our good. Put all this together. Realize not just what God saves us from, sin and destruction and death. Yes, praise God for that. But also what he saves us to, joy and freedom and life. So some of you have bought into an idea that you need to trust in Jesus to save your skin in eternity so you don't go to hell. But in the meantime, it's gonna be miserable on earth. But don't buy it. That's a lie. It's not true. God hasn't, Saved you just for eternal life later. He saved you for eternal life now. God has not saved you to make you miserable. God has saved you to give you life to the full, a life to the full that will last forever. So now we've seen in recent weeks, that doesn't mean life will always or ever be easy. Life in a sinful fallen world is hard, involves hurt and pain and following Jesus will actually make it harder in some, maybe many ways, but mark it down. Life will be higher, fuller, deeper, experiencing supernatural love and supernatural delight as God himself leads, guides, and fights for you, as God himself strengthens, sustains, and satisfies you, as God himself gives you wisdom from his word in a world where we are so prone to wander off into such foolish ways. God saves us by his grace and for our good. Believe that. God desires your good. Doesn't save you for your bad. He saves you for your good. Finally, God saves us for his glory. Now you must see this. Like really, seeing what I'm about to show you is central to understanding the purpose of your life. You miss this, you miss the point for which you have breath. So I want you to go on a tour with me. We're gonna fly through verse after verse after verse in our reading over the last couple of weeks. And I just wanna ask the question, why? Why did God deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt? And I wanna encourage you to underline, mark, note these verses that tell us why God saved his people out of slavery. So go back to Exodus 3, where the story began, at a burning bush, we're about to go fast. Hang with me. God told Moses, to go to Pharaoh, bring his people out of slavery. So let's ask the question, why? Exodus chapter three, verse 12. God said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. This is where we left off last week. You shall serve God on this mountain. So they will come out of slavery to this mountain and serve. Now that's a word that is often translated in scripture, worship. They might serve and worship me on this mountain. Then you go to chapter four. God tells Moses what's gonna happen and what he should say. Look at chapter four, verse 23. 
I say to you, this is what Moses will say to Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. You see that? So he may serve, worship me. Now go to chapter seven. Pharaoh doesn't let them go. So God begins to send plagues. And why does he say he's gonna deliver his people? Look at chapter seven, verse 16. We read this earlier. Verse 16, you shall say to him, say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may what? Serve, worship me in the wilderness. That's chapter seven, verse 16. Go to chapter eight, verse one. Why is God gonna send frogs? The Lord said to Moses, go unto Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Later in the chapter, why is he gonna send the flies? Verse 20, and the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out of the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. You get to chapter nine, why the livestock? Chapter nine, verse one, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. You're noticing a pattern here. Chapter nine, verse 13, why the hail? Verse 13, the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh, say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Keep going, chapter 10, why the locusts? Look at verse three, Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. A couple more, it's interesting, you get to verse seven, Pharaoh's servants get in on the action here. They say to Pharaoh, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so they may serve the Lord their God. Let him go worship. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron brought back to Pharaoh. He said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. But he actually didn't do that. So you get later in chapter 10, you see a plague of darkness. Come to verse 26. Moses says, our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. Finally, you get to chapter 12. God brings the Passover, the deliverance of his people from Egypt. And what does Pharaoh say? What's the whole it all builds to this moment, verse 31. He summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go do what? Go serve, go worship the Lord as you have said. Pharaoh learned all too late that you do not stand in the way of the worship of God. It's the whole point of the exodus from Egypt. God delivers his people out of slavery We've already seen for their good. Obviously, that was good for them. He brings them to Mount Sinai where they serve and worship him. And the rest of the book of Exodus that we will read will show us God's instructions for how he is to be served and worshiped. So if you were to summarize the book of Exodus, you got 20 chapters about salvation from slavery that lead to 20 chapters about the worship of God. And these chapters are incredible. Visions of God as a consuming fire. They're at the end of the first part, Exodus 19. And then Exodus 34, in a powerful scene that the Bible will talk about over and over again, is God causes his glory to pass in front of Moses and Moses falls on his face in worship. Moses will meet with God and he'll come away with his face shining. The whole end of the book, Exodus 40, Spoiler alert, in the end of the book of Exodus, it all ends with the glory of God filling the tabernacle in the middle of his people. The whole point is God saves his people, yes, for their good and for his glory. Now put all that together. I put two implications of this in your notes that we cannot miss. One, this means that casual worship before this God, before the one true holy God is not possible. 
Put, put this together. Sinners deserve destruction and death before a holy God. Yet sinners can be saved, not by anything they do, but by grace that God gives. Sinners brought from slavery to freedom, from destruction to satisfaction, from death to life. So what do people do who have been saved like that? They sing. <laughs> they celebrate. They worship God with all their hearts and all their souls and all their mind and all their with joy and awe and everything in them. They worship. It is not possible to be saved, to serve and worship this God and be bored by him. It's not possible. We worship him. So think about it. All the more so, all the more so for us who've been saved by the blood of Jesus, the son of God. We gather together every week before this God. And I want to be careful. I want to be careful because yes, outward signs of worship, emotional expressions of worship can be deceptive. But the reality is it is not possible to know this God and be casual and complacent before him. It's just not possible. I know we have different personalities, but when you realize what you've been saved from, what you've been saved to, and the God whose grace is the only reason for all of that, you are driven to sing, to shout, to lift your hands, to bow on your knees in awe of this God. Casual worship is not possible before him. Not the God who satisfies and leads and guides and fights for you instructs you in his word that leads to life and showers you with supernatural love. Casual worship is not possible. And second implication, global mission is not negotiable. So if we had time, we'd take another tour and see all the places where God says he's doing what he's doing, not only for his glory among his people, but all people's. You know the phrase, they or you will know that I am the Lord? That phrase, we could go on a tour 50 different times in the first four books of the Bible. Now, let me show you just one, Exodus 14. You gotta see this. You gotta see this. I think it's the last place we'll turn. I know there, there are military people all across this church. And I, I don't presume to know, be a, a military uh, expert strategist by any means. But I think I know enough to realize that you do not lead your people under your care into a dead end where you're trapped and an opposing army is right behind you that has power to overtake you. That just doesn't seem smart. Yet that's what God does in Exodus 14. He deliberately leads his people to the edge of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army about to overtake them. Why would God strategically do this? Well, let's read the Bible's answer. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 14, verse one, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of, I can't pronounce that, between Migdol and the sea. In front of, just keeping it real, in front of Baal Zephon, I'll try to pronounce that, who shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now follow this. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will, check this language out, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Why? Why did God lead his people to a dead end? Here's why. So he could split that dead end in half. 
lead his people on dry ground, that water would come crashing down the Egyptians and it would be clear, there is one God and he is glorious. God says, I will gain glory. <laughs> this is so awesome. Like God gives grace, God gets glory. He pours out grace and he gets glory. So God saves his people, not just for his glory among them, but for his glory among all peoples. So let me get, uh, I said we wouldn't turn around the play. I'll just, I'll just give it to you. Exodus 9, 16. Exodus 9, 16. This is a great verse. It so struck me when I was reading it this week. This is right before the plague of hail. God says to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, 16, for this purpose, I have raised you up. Listen to this. For this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What's God doing in this whole story? He's causing his people to receive his grace in a way that his glory is proclaimed. His name is proclaimed as glorious in all the earth. Amen. So here's the deal. I was out of the country this week at a training center called Radius International. About 50 men and women in their 20s and 30s. Some single, some couples with no kids, some couples with, fam with kids. All of them going through a year-long process of intense training to go to places in the world where the gospel has not yet gone, where Jesus has not yet been named. They do intense physical training. All of them getting up and doing workouts at 6 a.m. in the morning. I'm trying to keep up with these 20-year-olds was not easy. But intense physical training, biblical training. They're diving into God's word. The training in language and learning language and culture. As I walked away, I just couldn't help but pray for you, to pray for us. One, one that God would raise up and send out our kids. And 20 and 30-year-olds from among us. And not just 20 and 30, 40, 50, 60 year olds from among us. I was talking to uh, a woman, I'm guessing in her 50s, early 60s in uh, the lobby after. And she said, thank you for mentioning 50s and 60 year olds. Actually said specifically 60 year olds. She said, because I, I'm training, I'm about to get retirement and I, I'm training to be able to be a part of what God's doing around the world when I'm retired. Like I wanna make these years count. I said, may the Lord multiply your number. So, so may God raise up multitudes from among us to go to places where the name of Jesus is is not yet known. I am praying the days, years to come, God will send out hundreds if not thousands from this church to places where God's glory is not being proclaimed, that it might be proclaimed there. And not just those, but not just those who moved to another place. I know, I just hear, I see it, like the thought bubbles all across the room. Like, not all of us are supposed to go. Okay, yeah, okay, wait a second, wait a second. If that's your thought bubble, let me bring it down for a second because all of us, that all of us would see our lives through this lens. It's a biblical lens. Every single one of us, no matter how old or young you are, no matter what your occupation is, that you would see that God has saved you for the spread of his glory in the world. That God has saved you for the spread of his glory in the world. Right where you're sitting, this is the purpose of your life, to spread the glory of God in the world so that other people might know that he is God, so that other people might know that he is good, that other people might know that he saves all who trust in his grace. God has given you, saved you by this grace for a reason, and it is not to keep it to ourselves. God has given you and me this grace for the spread of this grace so that more and more and more people might be saved for their good and ultimately for God's glory. That we might not stop until every people group in the world is praising God for his grace. So this, is why, this is why we're fanning out this year around the world in short-term mission trips, proclaiming the gospel. There's so many opportunities. Please pray about, consider being a part of one of those. Two of them, where we're doing like huge groups going on. One in DR, one in the Ethiopia. I was meeting with the Ethiopia team recently. The opportunities we have right now to come alongside the church in Ethiopia to care for orphans is 
awesome. And we need another large group to go this July, exalt God's name as father to the fatherless there. So now's the time to sign up for these trips. I encourage you to do it. Look at your year. Is there any time where you can go individually, couple, family, whatever it is? And then, uh, I gotta tell you, I, I have a good friend in town today who uh, is working among unreached people groups, people that have yet to be reached with the gospel. I'd bring him up here if it were not for security reasons because he's working in places where there is much opposition to the spread of the gospel. And I'll never forget uh, when he told me about a girl in a remote, unreached village. She heard the gospel and believed in Jesus. And then she shared the gospel with her family and they believed in Jesus. Then a few days later, when some villagers found out that they had become Christians, this girl's family was killed. Like martyred within a few days of coming to faith in Jesus. So you know how this girl responded? She wrote a song of worship to God for his faithfulness and his goodness. And as far as we know, it's the first worship song ever written in her language. And I I have an audio clip of it and I wanna play for you. Obviously you won't be able to understand the words. And unfortunately for those of you who are watching or listening, Online, We're going to have to mute the audio here because of security concerns in this part, particular part of the world and the work that's going on in this language group. So you're about to go dark, sorry. But for those of us in this room and in other campuses, I just want you to hear the first song ever sung in praise to the name of Jesus in this particular language. Listen to this with me. Just, just picture this with me. I want you to picture people groups around the world almost like notes, like on a heavenly keyboard. Every note designed to bring distinct praise to God and one day every note is gonna be played to the praise of God. And right now there are about 7,000 notes that aren't being played. People groups that have not yet been reached and we wanna change that. We wanna see the name of Jesus proclaimed throughout the earth. So I challenge us to apply the book of Exodus in our lives in three ways. One, lean wholeheartedly on God's grace in your life. For eternity, trust in God's grace. Maybe today for the first time to trust in his grace. For all who are trusting in God's grace, keep trusting in his grace. God saves us by his grace. In light of that, second, I challenge you, live maximally for your glory, for your good, for your good. I mean, live to the full, but not according to this world. That's not for your good. Live according to God's word for your good. Don't buy into an idea that the coming to Christ means not living for your good. This is, this is good. God has saved you for good, so live maximally for it. Refuse to settle for life according to the ways of this world. Give your life experiencing fullness according to the word of God. And then third, I challenge you, as you live maximally for your good, as we do that, let's labor globally for God's glory. Starting right where we are right now, like this week, let's live so that others might know around us that God saves sinners by his grace for their good and for his glory. And let's pray that God would use us as a church together to make his name known in this city and to make his name known among the nations. So let's pray, let's pray. Oh, oh God, God of Moses, you're the God who revealed yourself in a consuming fire in Exodus 19. You're the God who sent all these plagues. You're the God who saved your people from slavery. We're praying to you right now. And so we pray in this day, in this place, all across Metro Washington, D.C., our heads bowed before you, God, we pray. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for saving us by your grace.
pray. God, I would pray that not one person would leave today without trusting in your grace to save them from their sin. And God, we pray that you'd help us to live for our good, the good you've designed for us. And use us as instruments in your hand for your glory this week, all across the city, and wherever you lead us in the world, use us as instruments for your glory, that your name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you'd like to watch today's full sermon or even download the free discussion questions, you can do all that and more at our website, Radical.net. And if you are in the Washington, D.C. area and would like to hear David in person, make plans to visit McLean Bible Church, where David serves as teaching pastor. You can learn more about McLean and find a campus near you at McLeanBible.org. Also, if you haven't registered for Secret Church Night and prayer, fasting, and the pursuit of God. We hope you will make plans to join David Platt and either the live audience in Washington, D.C. or the tens of thousands that will be gathered in homes and churches around the globe tuning in that night. It's April 26th, and you can register your group at secretchurch.org. At secretchurch.org. We hope you will make plans to join us on this important night. Well, I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. Until next time, join us at Radical.net.